Section 30 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 9. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chris Pyle. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 9, Section 30. Excerpts of Selected Speeches by Henry Clay. Public Spirit in Politics, from a speech at Buffalo, July 17, 1839. Are we not then called upon by the highest duties to our country, to its free institutions, to posterity, and to the world, to rise above all local prejudices and personal partialities, to discard all collateral questions, to disregard every subordinate point, and in a genuine spirit of compromise and concession, uniting heart and hand to preserve for ourselves the blessings of a free government, wisely, honestly, and faithfully administered, and as we receive them from our fathers to transmit them to our children, should we not justly subject ourselves to eternal reproach if we permitted our differences about mere men to bring defeat and disaster upon our cause? Our principles are imperishable, but men have but a fleeting existence and are themselves liable to change and corruption during its brief continuance. On the Greek Struggle for Independence, from a speech in 1824. Are we so mean, so base, so despicable, that we may not attempt to express our horror, utter our indignation, at the most brutal and atrocious war that ever stained earth or shocked high heaven, at the ferocious deeds of a savage and infuriated soldiery, stimulated and urged on by the clergy of a fanatical and inimical religion, and rioting in all the excesses of blood and butchery, at the mere details of which the heart sickens and recoils. If the great body of Christendom can look on calmly and coolly, while all this is perpetuated, on a Christian people, in its own immediate vicinity, in its very presence, let us at least evince that one of its remote extremities is susceptible of sensibility to Christian wrongs, and capable of sympathy for Christian sufferings. That in this remote quarter of the world, there are hearts not yet closed against compassion for human woes, that can pour out their indignant feelings at the oppression of a people endeared to us by every ancient recollection and every modern tie. Sir, attempts have been made to alarm the committee by the dangers to our commerce in the Mediterranean, and a wretched invoice of figs and opium has been spread before us to repress our sensibilities and to eradicate our humanity. Ah, sir, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall it avail a nation to save the whole of a miserable trade and lose its liberties? South American Independence as Related to the United States From a Speech Before the House of Representatives in 1818 It is the doctrine of thrones that man is too ignorant to govern himself. Their partisans assert his incapacity and reference to all nations. If they cannot command universal assent to the proposition, it is then demanded as to particular nations. And our pride and our presumption do often make converts of us. I contend that it is to arraign the dispositions of Providence himself, to suppose that he has created beings incapable of governing themselves, and to be trampled on by kings. Self-government is the natural government of man and for proof I refer to the aborigines of our own land. 
Were I to speculate in hypotheses unfavorable to human liberty, my speculation should be founded rather upon the vices, refinements, or density of population. Crowded together in compact masses, even if they were philosophers, the contagion of the passions is communicated and caught, and the effect too often, I admit, is the overthrow of liberty. Dispersed over such an immense space as that on which the people of Spanish America are spread, their physical and I believe also their moral condition both favor their liberty. With regard to their superstition, they worship the same God with us. Their prayers are offered up in their temples to the same Redeemer, whose intercession we expect to save us. Nor is there anything in the Catholic religion unfavorable to freedom. Our religions united with government are more or less inimical to liberty. All separated from government are compatible with liberty. If the people of Spanish America have not already gone so far in religious toleration as we have, the difference in their condition from ours should not be forgotten. Everything is progressive, and in time I hope to see them imitating in this respect our example. But grant that the people of Spanish America are ignorant and incompetent for free government. To whom is that ignorance to be ascribed? Is it not to the execrable system of Spain, which she seeks again to establish and to perpetuate? So far from chilling our hearts, it ought to increase our solicitude for our unfortunate brethren. It ought to animate us to desire the redemption of the minds and bodies of unborn millions from the brutifying effects of a system whose tendency is to stifle the faculties of the soul and to degrade them to the level of beasts. I would invoke the spirits of our departed fathers. Was it for yourselves only that you nobly fought? No, no. It was the chains that were forging for your posterity that made you fly to arms and scattering the elements of these chains to the winds, you transmitted to us the rich inheritance of liberty. From the Valedictory to the Senate, delivered 1842. From 1806, the period of my entrance upon this noble theater, with short intervals to the present time, I have been engaged in the public councils at home or abroad. Of the services rendered during that long and arduous period of my life, it does not become me to speak. History, if she deigned to notice me, and posterity, if the recollection of my humble actions shall be transmitted to posterity, are the best, the truest, and the most impartial judges. When death has closed the scene, their sentence will be pronounced, and to that I commit myself. My public conduct is a fair subject for the criticism and judgment of my fellow men, but the motives by which I have been prompted are known only to the great searcher of the human heart and to myself, and I trust I may be pardoned for repeating a declaration made some thirteen years ago that whatever errors, and doubtless there have been many, may be discovered in a review of my public service, I can with unshaken confidence appeal to that divine arbiter, for the truth of the declaration that I have been influenced by no impure purpose, no personal motive, have sought no personal aggrandizement, but that in all my public acts I have had a single eye directed and a warm and devoted heart dedicated to what, in my best judgment, I believe the true interests the honor, the union, and the happiness of my country required. During that long period, however, I have not escaped the fate of other public men, nor failed to incur censure and detraction of the bitterest, most unrelenting, and most malignant character. And though not always insensible to the pain it was meant to inflict, I have borne it, in general, with composure and without disturbance, waiting as I have done in perfect and undoubting confidence for the ultimate triumph of justice and of truth and in the entire persuasion that time should settle all things that they should be, and that whatever wrong or injustice I might experience at the hands of man, 
he to whom all hearts are open and fully known, would by the inscrutable dispensations of his providence rectify all error, redress all wrong, and cause ample justice to be done. But I have not meanwhile been unsustained. Everywhere throughout the extent of this great continent, I have had cordial, warm-hearted, faithful, and devoted friends who have known me, loved me, and appreciated my motives. To them, if language were capable of fully expressing my acknowledgments, I would now offer all the return I have the power to make, for their genuine, disinterested, and persevering fidelity and devoted attachment the feelings and sentiments of a heart overflowing with never-ceasing gratitude. If, however, I fail in suitable language to express my gratitude to them for all the kindness they have shown me, what shall I say? What can I say? At all commensurate with those feelings of gratitude with which I have been inspired by the state whose humble representative and servant I have been in this chamber. I emigrated from Virginia to the state of Kentucky now nearly forty-five years ago. I went as an orphan boy who had not yet attained the age of majority, who had never recognized a father's smile, nor felt his warm caresses, poor, penniless, without the favor of the great, with an imperfect and neglected education, hardly sufficient for the ordinary business and common pursuits of life, but scarce had I set foot upon her generous soil, when I was embraced with parental fondness, caressed as though I had been a favorite child, and patronized with liberal and unbounded munificence. From that period the highest honors of the state have been freely bestowed upon me, and when in the darkest hour of calumny and detraction I seemed to be assailed by all the rest of the world, she interposed her broad and impenetrable shield, repelled the poison shafts that were aimed for my destruction, and vindicated my good name from every malignant and unfounded aspersion. I return with indescribable pleasure to linger a while longer, and mingle with the warm-hearted and whole-souled people of that state. And when the last scene shall forever close upon me, I hope that my earthly remains will be laid under her green sod, with those of her gallant and patriotic sons. That my nature is warm, my temper ardent, my disposition, especially in relation to the public service, enthusiastic, I am ready to own and those who suppose that I have been assuming the dictatorship have only mistaken for arrogance or assumption that ardor and devotion which are natural to my constitution, and which I may have displayed with too little regard to cold, calculating, and cautious prudence, in sustaining and zealously supporting important national measures of policy which I have presented and espoused. I go from this place under the hope that we shall mutually consign a perpetual oblivion whatever personal collisions may at any time unfortunately have occurred between us, and that our recollection shall dwell in future only on those conflicts of mind with mind, those intellectual struggles, those noble exhibitions of the powers of logic, argument, and eloquence, honorable to the Senate and to the nation, in which each has sought and contended for what he deemed the best mode of accomplishing one common object, the interest and the most happiness of our beloved country. To these thrilling and delightful scenes it will be my pleasure and my pride to look back in my retirement with unmeasured satisfaction. May the most precious blessings of heaven rest upon the whole Senate and each member of it, and may the labors of every one redound to the benefit of the nation and to the advancement of his own fame and renown. And when you shall retire to the bosom of your constituents, may you receive the most cheering and gratifying of all human rewards, their cordial greeting of well done, good and faithful servant. From the Lexington Speech on Retirement to Private Life It would neither be fitting, 
nor is it my purpose to pass judgment on all the acts of my public life. But I hope I shall be excused for one or two observations which the occasion appears to me to authorize. I never but once changed my opinion on any great measure of national policy, or on any great principle of construction of the national constitution. In early life, on deliberate consideration, I adopted the principles of interpreting the federal constitution, which have been so ably developed and enforced by Mr. Madison in his memorable report to the Virginia legislature. And to them, as I understood them, I have constantly adhered. Upon the question of coming up in the Senate of the United States to recharter the First Bank of the United States, thirty years ago, I opposed the recharter upon convictions which I honestly entertained. The experience of the war, which shortly followed, the condition into which the currency of the country was thrown without a bank, and I may now add later in more disastrous experience, convinced me I was wrong. I publicly stated to my constituents, in a speech in Lexington, that which I made in the House of Representatives of the United States not having been reported, my reasons for that change. And they are preserved in the archives of the country. I appeal to that record, and am willing to be judged now and hereafter by their validity. I do not advert to the fact of this solitary insistence of change of opinion as implying any personal merit, but because it is a fact. I will, however, say that I think it very perilous to the utility of any public man to make frequent changes of opinion, or any change, but upon grounds so sufficient and palpable, that the public can clearly see and approve them. If we could look through a window into the human breast and there discover the causes which led to changes of opinion, they might be made without hazard. But as it is impossible to penetrate the human heart and distinguish between the sinister and honest motives which prompt it, any public man that changes his opinion, once deliberately formed and promulgated, under other circumstances than those which I have stated, draws around him distrust, impairs the public confidence, and lessens his capacity to serve his country. I will take this occasion now to say that I am, and have been long satisfied, that it would have been wiser and more politic in me to have declined accepting the office of Secretary of State in 1825. Not that my motives were not as pure and as patriotic as ever carried any man into public office. Not that the calumny which was applied to the fact was not as gross and as unfounded as any that was ever propagated. Not that valued friends and highly esteemed opponents did not unite in urging my acceptance of the office. Not that the administration of Mr. Adams will not, I sincerely believe, advantageously compare with any of his predecessors in economy, purity, prudence, and wisdom. Not that Mr. Adams himself was wanting in any of those high qualifications and upright and patriotic intentions which were suited to the office. But my error in accepting the office arose out of my underrating the power of detraction and the force of ignorance, and abiding with too sure a confidence in the conscious integrity and uprightness of my own motives. Of that ignorance I had a remarkable and laughable example on an occasion which I shall relate. I was traveling in 1828 through, I believe it was Spotsylvania County in Virginia, on my return to Washington, in company with some young friends. We halted at night at a tavern, kept by an aged gentleman who, I quickly perceived from the disorder and confusion which reigned, had not the happiness to have a wife. After a hurried and bad supper, the old gentleman sat down by me, and without hearing my name, but understanding that I was from Kentucky, remarked that he had four sons in that state, and that he was very sorry they were divided in politics, two being for Adams and two for Jackson. He wished they were all for Jackson. Why? I asked him. 
Because, he said, that fellow Clay and Adams had cheated Jackson out of the presidency. Have you ever seen any evidence, my old friend? said I, of that? No, he replied, none. And he wanted to see none. But, I observed, looking him directly and steadily in the face, suppose Mr. Clay were to come here and assure you upon his honor that it was all a vile calumny and not a word of truth in it, would you believe him? No, replied the old gentleman promptly and emphatically. I said to him in conclusion, Will you be good enough to show me to bed, and bade him good night. The next morning, having in the interval learned my name, he came to me full of apologies, but I at once put him at his ease by assuring him that I did not feel in the slightest degree hurt or offended with him. If to have served my country during a long series of years with fervent zeal and unshaken fidelity, in seasons of peace and war, at home and abroad, in the legislative halls and in an executive department, if to have labored most sedulously to avert the embarrassment and distress which now overspread this union, and when they came to have exerted myself anxiously at the extra session, and to this, to devise healing remedies, if to have desired to introduce economy and reform in the general administration, curtail enormous executive power, and amply provide, at the same time, for the wants of the government and the wants of the people, by a tariff which would give it revenue and then protection, if to have earnestly sought to establish the bright but too rare example of a party in power faithful to its promises and pledges made when out of power, if these services, exertions, and endeavors justify the accusation of ambition, I must plead guilty to the charge. I have wished the good opinion of the world, but I defy the most malignant of my enemies to show that I have attempted to gain it by any low or groveling arts, by any mean or unworthy sacrifices, by the violation of any of the obligations of honor, or by a breach of any of the duties which I owed to my country. How is this right of the people, to abolish an existing government and set up a new one to be practically exercised? Our revolutionary ancestors did not tell us by words, but they proclaimed it by gallant and noble deeds. Who are the people that are to tear up the whole fabric of human society, whenever and as often as caprice or passion may prompt them? when all the arrangements and ordinances of existing organized society are prostrated and subverted, as must be supposed in such a lawless and irregular movement as that in Rhode Island, the established privileges and distinctions between the sexes, between the colors, between the ages, between natives and foreigners, between the sane and insane, and between the innocent and guilty convict, all the offspring of positive institutions are cast down and abolished, and society is thrown into one heterogeneous and unregulated mass. And is it contended that the major part of this Babel congregation is invested with the right to build up at its pleasure a new government, that as often and whenever society can be drummed up and thrown into such a shapeless mass, the major part of it may establish another and another new government in endless succession? Why, this would overturn all social organization, make revolutions the extreme and last resort of an oppressed people, the commonest occurrences of human life, and the standing order of the day. How such a principle would operate in a certain section of this union, with a peculiar population, you will readily conceive. No community could endure such an intolerable state of things anywhere, and all would sooner or later take refuge from such ceaseless agitation in the calm repose of absolute despotism. Fellow citizens of all parties, the present situation of our country is one of unexampled distress and difficulty, but there is no occasion for any despondency. A kind and bountiful providence has never deserted us. Punished us he perhaps has, 
for our neglect of his blessings and our misdeeds we have a varied and fertile soil a genial climate and free institutions our whole land is covered in profusion with the means of subsistence and the comforts of life our gallant ship it is unfortunately true lies helpless tossed on a tempestuous sea amid the conflicting billows of contending parties without a rudder and without a faithful pilot but that ship is our country embodying all our past glory all our future hopes its crew is our whole people by whatever political denomination they are known if she goes down we all go down together let us remember the dying words of the gallant and lamented lawrence don't give up the ship the glorious banner of our country with its unstained stars and stripes still proudly floats at its masthead with stout hearts and strong arms we can surmount all our difficulties let us all all rally round that banner and finally resolve to perpetuate our liberties and regain our lost prosperity whigs arouse from that ignoble supineness which encompasses you awake from the lethargy in which you lie bound cast from you that unworthy apathy which seems to make you indifferent to the fate of your country arouse awake shake off the dewdrops that glitter on your garments and once more march to battle and to victory you have been disappointed deceived betrayed shamefully deceived and betrayed but will you therefore also prove false and faithless to your country or obey the impulses of a just and patriotic indignation as for captain tyler he is a mere snap a flash in the pan pick your wig flints and try your rifles again from the speeches of henry clay edited by calvin cotton copyright 1857 by a s barnes and company end of section 30 recording by chris pile